I'm delighted to have in the studio today, Alan Taylor. Good afternoon, Alan. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. You had a bit of a horrendous journey, I believe, getting here today. Well, it's just a story of the M25, I'm afraid. It, but, it's uh, a car park, isn't it? Sure, we got it anyway, so... Well done. Good to have you here. Yeah. Uh, so let's start by taking you back to your childhood. Uh, you're an 80s child, I believe. Why'd you have to say that? Got to be good. You have to remind me, didn't you? Just a baby, just a baby. Uh, You're from Liverpool. Talk a bit about the early years. And did a snooker cue figure early on, or did other sports prevail? There's never been another sport for me, purely because I'm not that athletic. As you can see me sitting in the studio here. No comments. (laughs) I started playing when I was seven. I've got one brother, Mark. He's two years older than me. And at that time, early 90s, it was like the most popular present at Christmas was the Steve Davis foldable snooker table. Oh, yeah. You know, you can play the air hockey and, and whatnot. So uh, he got that. Um, I wasn't that impressed. So uh, I ended up using it more than him, really. And uh, he uh, he got fed up about January of me being in his room all the while playing snooker. So I, uh, I took over the mantle, so to speak. And from then on, it was literally moved to a big table, full size, when I was eight. And uh, and the rest is history, as they say. And that's in a local club that you went to, presumably. Yes, yeah, it was just a local. Um, it was an unnamed club, couple of tables, literally a conservative club, if you will. A um, few of the old generation trying to show me a few trick shots and what to do, but I soon became better than them, and it was just a love. I don't know if it was the colours or just the passion of just seeing the balls going in the pocket. And well, there's signs of greatness in those early days. Could you? Did you? You know, could, were people saying to you, "You're a bit special." Yeah, 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 I think they were. I mean, my my uh, hero back in them days was uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan because it was that time where he was starting to become um, quite dominant in the game and I used to base my game on him. Um, I was quick-fired, I was I was fast round the table. I, could, I thought I could play shots that other people could never play um, and there was a few people who, who actually proved that right, you know. So, um, yeah, I sort of... I sort of see myself doing things in the game and it was always a passion, um, which is cl- the main thing for me, really. I still love the game as much now as I did when I was seven. Because so. I know we, we were talking before you came on, I had a quick coffee around the corner, and I was trying to think back, because the, the, the programme Pop Black probably went off-air when you were born, I would have thought, around that time. Just about, I think, yeah. I mean, my earliest days of watching snooker, apart from the World Championships, was uh, Big Break. Yeah. So um, there was a few few lads who actually went on junior Big Break. I didn't actually make it on there, but... Yeah, you know, you try and reenact the, the trick shots John Virgo does and whatnot, and it doesn't work every time. Because my heroes, I think, from those days would have been people like Ray Reardon, uh, John Pullman, Freddie Davis, great players. Yeah. Uh, do you think, how has the sport progressed since those days, those early days? Can you compare, for instance, you know, the, the players from the past and their technical capability versus the players of today? Has it, has it moved on like other sports do? I would, su- I would say it has, yeah. It definitely, definitely moved on. I mean, the conditions have changed much. I mean, back in the back in the the earlier generations, the the cloths were heavier, they were thicker, the balls were heavier, everything was a bit slowed down, if you will. Um, some may say the players were too, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, definitely the conditions, the talent, and I presume just the decades of of snooker professionals and champions that all the younger lads are learning from are just it's bound to happen. It's it's progression in sport that people learn from other people's mistakes or learn from from their achievements and the game just become it has become more attacking there's the old players like Cliff Thorburn and Teddy yeah. Griffiths who were mostly known for being the slow coaches 
Um, but now that's that's few and far between. Now is is a very open attacking game. But like, once again, the conditions make that um, a lot more feasible. Uh, you're saying you started around the age of eight, yes. and then progressed from there. To, and you had your favourite, as you say, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah. Who, who's helped you during that period, though, to learn the trick shots to get around quick? How did you? I mean. The art of the potable was great, but how do you place a white wing on it after? I've never understood. It's beyond me. I still don't understand it now. <laughs> you can't say that. I, can't I, well, say well, well, a magician never reveals his tricks, mate. But <laughs> <laughs> um, there was there was a few um, players in the club. Obviously, at that stage, everyone was better than me, so I just took on all information and and used what I thought was was uh, was needed. Um, there was a professional um, around the Liverpool area, Danny Murphy. He was. He was my very first coach. He used to run like a Saturday morning club. And that was when I was eight. I used to go to the clubs um, nine till 12, just hit balls around the table. If you potted a few, so be it. Um, but he saw something in me and it was like, it was a little bit of take him under my wing. And we were sort of similar styles as in attacking and, and fast thinking. I mean, at an early age, like you said before, that he spotted something and oh, I was obviously grateful for his help. Is it as popular now as it was back in the eighties? The sport? Have you seen? I mean, obviously, it's a, a big amateur scene, it's a big junior scene. Yeah. Is there an expansion at the moment? You're seeing progress. Um, if I'm honest, I think the junior scene, the amateur game, um, did take a, a, a massive dip, um, as possibly the the, possi- the the popularity of watching the, um, the professional sport. Um, since Barry Hearn's taken over the game now, and with his team of many men and uh, and women, that they have tried to to drag it up to the modern day expectations of a professional sport. Um, but say when I was a junior, it was every fr- uh, Saturday and Sunday we were travelling in a different part of the UK. So you do tour around, you do play yes, proper yeah, tournaments. Yeah, yeah. From from what age? From uh, literally from possibly nine or ten i'd say that young yeah yeah there was a there was a few festivals snooker festivals held at the old butlins and pontins uh, so like week longs during the the uh, the easter and summer breaks and um, so that was literally oh where are you going oh, i'm going to spain where are you going i was going to pontins to pot a few balls and a lot of kids my age didn't understand that but for me that was my only draw for, for the the, uh, the the spring break so and in order to get you there, it's got to be a huge family commitment, presumably, because yes. at that age you've got a, you know, yeah. parents everywhere. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So were they keen on the sport as well? Did, did yeah, they, I don't yeah. know, I don't know. My mum used to, said she used to watch it, um, maybe when she was pregnant with me, maybe that's where I got, got the love, because it was the old black and white of the, the yellows behind the blue type of story. And it's in, you know, But um, nobody in my family before has played snooker, and no one since. So I'm a one-off, as they say. That's quite amazing, isn't it? <laughs> so how many years do you have to cut... I mean, you, you, you cut your teeth as an amateur from the age of nine right the way through till... You could turn pro at 16 at that stage. 16? Yes, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the youngest you could be, a professional. And what, what age did you turn professional? Um, only four years ago. So it's quite yeah, late then, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my own eyes, I was ready to turn professional. Um, others, others may say otherwise, but I truly believed I was ready. Um, but at that stage, I was 16, 17... Um, started to drive, um, life took over, it starts costing money, you know, to to get to tournaments and all your expenses are covered by yourself anyway and even as a professional they are. Um, so well, we'll talk about that a bit later because yeah. when we're again talking off air, that really surprised me because you think about sport nowadays, yes. the level of sponsorship, you, you, you compare what you do to what a Premier Football League player would earn and it's just crazy yeah. I and mean, there's just no comparison. Yeah. And yeah, it's probably a beauty in that as well. It's probably... 
you've got to have a real love and passion for the sport to, to continue because you've got to fund it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, basically, I practice for free. Yeah, um, I'm just basically putting all the hours God sends to to give myself a chance of beating the next bloke. So, if if someone was willing to to sponsor you, so be it. But other than that, the prize money you win goes back into 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 the pot and and you go again, so to speak. So during the amateur period, no sponsors at all. It's only since you've been professional that you've had some level of sponsorship. Yes, yeah, yeah, helping helping hands. Um, whether it just be a lift to a tournament or a hotel fee or simple things like that um I'm, I'm lucky enough now to have a sponsor to cover just purely expenses um obviously every tournament that we enter does incur uh, an entrance fee um we're traveling worldwide and and, and europe wide now that all the flights and hotels are, are down to us nothing is ever well to be fair i do tell a lie that the foreign um I've been to India and China there, and the hotels are paid for by World Snooker while you're still in the tournament. 2013, you were saying you actually went professional. Yes, this is well, this is my fourth season now as a professional. So you're so. still a newbie, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been around the block, but as a professional, <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm still a schoolboy. So, so talking about being a schoolboy, uh, let, let's just go back again, because yeah, we left you, you were still in Liverpool area, you were mm-hmm. still an amateur player. Yeah. Um, what 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 brought you down here? Is that part of the, the reason because you wanted to improve the game? How did you end up down here? Uh, my lady, my good lady. Ah, the woman in yes, your life. the woman. Yes, ah, there's yes. always a woman. There's yeah. always a woman, yeah. Behind <laughs> every good player, there's a good woman, yeah. Um, yeah, she, I met her. She went to Liverpool University. Um, we met, and she's a teacher, so she got a job down in Essex, um, and I was to follow, and it just so happens that it's a hotbed of snooker down here, so um, that worked out quite Essex well. Essex in particular, actually? yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a few, obviously, the current professionals. You've got Ali Carter, Stuart Bingham, and uh, like Ronnie O'Sullivan is, is not, it's not too far around. And uh, the, the previous days of Steve Davis and, and, and whatnot. Of course, a, yeah, because he was a good Essex boy, wasn't he? There's so. was a, was a big draw for the foreign professionals yeah. um, to come over and, and practice here before tournaments. There was a club, Anthony Hamilton, old Ken Doherty from Dublin. He, he used to came came over and all practice together and uh, spar with each other, so to speak. So you're now a, a professional, of course, but you did have a couple of jobs, I think, prior to getting onto the professional circuit. Tell us about those. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I left school, as you say, life took over, started to cost a few quid. Um, so as it does. I, as it does, yeah, <laughs> indeed. So um, I worked in Burton Menswear when I was 16, first job, handed me CV in. You can tell. You can tell. <laughs> Dapper. Hey, try my best, try my best. I haven't got the waistcoat on today, though. Uh, yeah, I worked in there, and then it was just basically office jobs. Um, jumping to and from and uh, filing clerks, you know, the, the boring nine to five, Monday to Friday. Um, wasn't my cup of tea, so to speak. And uh, yeah, got to got to a stage where I thought I'm I'm, t- I'm too good at snooker not to give it a hundred and ten percent. Well, so I think you've got to. You know, if, if you're that good and you've got mm. a passion for something nowadays, yeah. you've got to go for it, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I was I was I was in tournaments, pro ams as we call them. Um, just pocket money, you know, see how you're getting on in a few quid on the side, Saturday, Sunday tournaments and I was winning the odd one and I was getting deep in the semi finals, maybe the final, and I was thinking, I'm working five days a week. Yeah. You know, if I was to do this a ho- like seven days a week, full time practice, then I'll be winning these consistently and I think it was within eighteen months of me um resigning from my job. Um I came from behind the desk and uh I turned professional so it was credit to myself really. And in those those last days of being an amateur before you became professional, did you know, who gave you that extra boost? 
who, who convinced you that you had the capability? Um, at that stage, uh, it was purely um, myself. Really? Yes, at that stage. Um, I turned professional, and then during the first season of a professional, it was I would, I would move down to Essex. Um, and then I walked into the snooker club and bumped into one of the Essex snookering legends, Vic Harris. Um, and since then, I mean, rest his soul, he's passed away. Um, but I spent two years with Vic. Um, he said he was quite a character. Oh, different. <laughs> he was. He was. It was never a dull moment, mate. He knew when to separate the business to the pleasure, um, but he could mix the both perfectly. And sadly suffered from ill health, you were telling yes, me. Yes, yeah, yeah. So. He, 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 was, he was ill for about 20-odd years. He turned professional himself, and um, it was only a few seasons before... Um, he, he started getting getting problems and had to sort of rein it in a little bit, and um, yeah, it was it was, uh, it was tough to see him like that. But uh, all the same, I'm grateful for meeting him. But in, inspiring for you, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, as, as, yeah. as though you've gone yeah. professional. Yeah. Yes. And since then, mentoring who's supported you? Um, there's a bloke in the club. Um, he's t- sort of taken over the mantle from Victor. He was an ex-player, Sean Cannon. He's, uh, he's, he still makes 147s now, although he, he claims to n- not, not be any good. Um, he's got no interest in playing the game professionally, but uh, again, his knowledge is there. And um, there's a bloke sitting just out of reach to my left hand side. He's here. not far away, is he's he? Not that we'll far bring away. him in. He's been sitting there yeah. silently, which is, and I know this guy, and it's not often we can keep him silent. <laughs> yeah, but when you can talk as much as me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you've got Tony with you. What's the story with Tony? Tony Ellison is, uh, is a close friend of Vic Harris, and. Um, Clearly, before Vic passed away, he knew how ill he was, and I think Vic was very clever in the sense that he used to introduce me to people that that he trusted and, and would look after me upon his leaving this earth. And oh, uh, to- Tony was one of them, and he's become my official driver. Uh, although I don't know whether he likes being called that. <laughs> a bit of a roadie, <laughs> he is indeed. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't carry me cue that often. Let's put Tony on the spot. Tony, if you've got to describe Alan's game in a competitive world what makes his game special what's he famous for what what really makes him stand out well alan is a a very very good potter of balls and we have long conversations about this because i say that uh, that's half the game and the other half is safety and uh, you've got to know when to pot and when not to so you know this is this is really where we where we are at the moment um, alan there are 128 professionals and they can all make centuries uh, yeah. stopping them making them is the secret to the, to winning matches it might sound boring but it has to be so done. the defensive part of the game is as important oh, as the attacking it, part it, really absolutely it's as important as that uh, Alan mentioned the phone call from Vic Harris um, I remember it well Barry the, 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 my phone went and it was Vic Harris God bless him and he knew that he was he was going to leave this world shortly and it's very poignant really because he said Tony look after him for me will you and I've honoured Vic Harris for that. I've known him for over 40 years. And Alan and I have become good friends. We travel a lot. We have a lot of laughs together. I, I hope I'm, I'm worth my weight to him. Um, that's a great story. And, and that's, 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 that's a really good story. It's a really good story. Thank you, Tony. Um, Alan, you were saying you turned professional a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. How does one, excuse my ignorance, how does one go about, from the amateur status, turning professional what do you have to do? Okay, so there's a qualifying school once a year. It's after the World Championships in May. Um, and basically there's eight or possibly 12, I can't remember. I didn't qualify via the qualifying school. Um, I qualified via a 
um, it's called a PTC, which was a Players Tour Championship then. Okay. It was basically like a European tour alongside all the main main ranking events, and it was it was a world breaking thing in snooker purely because amateurs could play alongside and with and against uh, professionals. How did you get on? Did you play any professionals? Did you surprise did. them? Yeah, yeah, I did indeed. That's how I qualified. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I beat a couple on 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 route to. Uh, and who was that? Um, well, I beat um, who was it? Ken Doherty. Yeah. Um, Fergal O'Brien, uh, the Irish but Irish boys. Um, there's a few young, young guns like Jamie Cope, um, Mark Davis. He's a, he's another Southern player. Um, players that potentially people may not not have heard of if you're not into snooker. Um, but players that who have been around for 15, 20 years, and the knowledge is you know it, it's hard to break down as a as a young up and coming player like like Tony was saying. I pot the balls off the lampshades and they just go. We've got another one here, boys. Yeah, you know, chuck him in the deep end and see what happens. But um, it's 128 professionals, is that yes, right? Yes, in, in, in the in, in the, the world globally is yes. 100. So the competition mm-hmm. must be absolutely fierce with new players coming through all the time, thinking they're going to make a grade. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Once you've got your tour card, mm-hmm. how long do you retain it? It's a two-year tour card. So it's only two years. Only two years. It's guaranteed for two years. Um, you can enter as many or as little tournaments as you like in them two years. Um, and if you're not cutting the grade, so to speak, back to an amateur and start again. So that could happen at any given moment. Any given moment. And that we'll talk about it maybe in a minute or two. But that transformation from going from amateur to professional, mm-hmm. it must be a different world completely. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you, it's like you, you stroll in and you think, oh, I'm the top dog, and and before you know it, you know, <laughs> you're back in the car on the way home, thinking, how did I lose that much? <laughs> <laughs> So we'll pick up on that in a moment or two after we play another track. But uh, actually, we do know also that you're a bit of a mimicker. You're a bit of an impressionist. I was reading the websites, and uh, they were saying you, you do a lot of snooker players, but I think you do a few famous people as well. I do try my hand, yeah. So go yeah. on. Let, who, who are we going to do to take well, us into the next track? What are you going to do? Well, uh, what, what is the next track? Uh, that's a good one. I have no idea, because I've completely forgotten to talk to you. It could okay. be anything. Uh, we are going to play, actually, on the next track. We're going to play a bit of Ed Sheeran and Bloodstream. But Ed Sheeran and Bloodstream. Yeah, okay, so well, well, just for Blockland Radio, we have another special guest here, Ken Bruce from Radio 2. Okay. Uh, thank you, buddy. As uh, Ken Bruce here now on Brooklyn's Radio, the sound of Surrey, hashtag loving Surrey. Uh, the next track here is The Ginger Magician, Ed Sheeran and Bloodstream. We're going to get you to do some voiceovers before you go. A few jingles. Brooklyn's Radio, Surrey Weather. Brought to you by Bourne Valley Garden Centre. Giving you a warm welcome, whatever the weather. Ah, thank you now. It's Ken Bruce here on Broughton's Radio, The Sound of Surrey. Saturday the 13th of August 2016. Today, cloudy but sunny intervals developing through the afternoon and feeling warm and high of 25 degrees Celsius. Tonight, some cloud overnight, but also some clear periods and the remaining dry with a light winds and a low of 12 degrees. Sunday, a mainly dry with sunny periods, although there may be an isolated shower, so keep your umbrellas close to hand. Feeling warm and just light breezes as Sunday's a high of 23. Brooklyn's Radio Surrey Weather, brought to you by Bourne Valley Garden Centre, giving you a warm welcome, whatever the weather. He's going to be doing me out of a job, I can see that now. Brooklyn's Radio. 
Silent, I think we left things uh, just before the news. You were saying that uh, your maiden season was 2013-2014, and you were talking about the, the tour card you get lasts for two years. So yeah. that means you've already been through a process of having to retain your card. Yeah, indeed, yeah. Um, the second season, um, it's vital to either, with the 128 professionals, it's vital to be in the top 64 and or um, re-qualify via the same routes. Um if you drop off the tour, you've got qualifying school again, where you can almost continue on your tour card, but all your points are reset to zero. Um, I retained it by, um, again, travelling around Europe, playing with professionals and gaining enough points on the secondary European ranking system. So you can do that? Yes, it's, it's to gain or retain a ticket. So at that stage, amateurs could turn professional or professionals could almost keep the card. And a bit that shocked me, I guess from the first hour of the interviews, is that you have to fund stuff yourself. Yeah. And so there's no support, there's no secretary. You've got the gentleman here. You've got the driver. You've got the driver. Yeah. But other than that, really, you are on your own. Yes, yes, indeed. All prize money is almost self-funding then from the next tournaments. Um, obviously, if you get sponsor deals and logos on the waistcoat, then that helps. But um, apart from that, everything is... En- from entry fee to hotel to flight to food, drink, petrol, everything is, is, is lumped on yourself. Those first couple of seasons, once you turned professional, any real highlights for any moments where you want? I'm, I'm getting there. I can feel it's improving. Yeah, well, I mean, the first time I played on TV, um, actually played on Eurosport twice uh, in my career. Because that must be so, I mean, daunting. It was yeah, From an amateur stage to playing in big venues is tough enough, but yeah. cameras, different yeah, world. It was different, indeed. Um, it's almost the reason why every snooker player wants to play snooker because yeah. you, you grow up watching it on TV, TV you never go down the club and, and watch the two old blokes pushing balls around the table but once you get there and you've got, you've got two men running around with the camera chasing you every ball and, and you've got 4,000 people in, in the audience watching you clapping when you pot one and groaning when you miss and it, it's, it's very like, isolated out there let's put it that way How did you fare the first time? Uh, I played Mark Allen on TV. I was out in Antwerp and I lost four nil in under an hour. Um, <laughs> and I spent I spent the time actually. I thought I'm going to give myself um, this match as a learning experience. Uh, basically, I'm going to spend my time sitting in my seat watching this boy pop balls and just see how he fares under the cameras and lights. And he looked completely relaxed. He was like he was in his slippers in his living room. And I thought that's what I need to work so on. So that helped. Yes, definitely did. Yeah, the second time I played. Uh, sorry to jump in there, but uh, I was a bit excited that I won a game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so who was that against? Uh, that was against Matthew Stevens, um, a long-term Welsh professional. Um, and uh, that was out in Poland, again on Eurosport. Um, and I took the experience from the first match and just be able to deal with your emotions, really, because it can be a bit, you know, everything's sped up out there you think you have to rush because you're live on TV and your routine yeah, I guess that tendency you probably just yeah. you've got to get on with it but it's it probably not the case you've got to definitely play your not. own game definitely not I mean all the hours and, and days and weeks that you prepare for a tournament and, and the practice and the routines you go through uh, mentally as well as physically um, you just think well the first time I played that was almost just thrown into a bucket and just pick, pick out anything and it didn't work, but the second time I was able to control my thoughts and uh, and get the job done. So talk about touring. You, you get out there how well, a few days before the tour is due to take place, and what yeah. sort of preparation do you have to go through? Because my assumption was you'd have 
like a, a regular sparring partner that you literally play? Does it work like that, or is it um, more of a mental thing and you've got to get your head around it on your own? No, well, surely when, when we're back home and we're practising for these tournaments, we do have the other, we spar normally against other, other professionals or, or high up. No, no, I don't practise with Tony, no. no. We've <laughs> tried to throw that one in there. We, we've tried, we've tried. Um, but, uh, yeah, we practise with other, other professionals, and um, but when, when, we're, when we're coming up to a tournament, you almost pull yourself away from the crowd and do your last-minute preparation on your own so the competitors can't get an edge. Um, But coming up to a tournament, European or UK-based is normally a day or two maximum. Get the drive out of the way, recover from a journey, that type of thing. Find somewhere to practice. Um, And then the the Far East ones, say India or China, that's a couple of days before. We're actually contracted to be there for the opening ceremony to please the sponsors. So, um, I mean, it does come in handy to get over the jet lag, but you know, mm. you, you have got to put that into your planning and your schedule. Practice-wise, you may lose a day or two travelling, but I'm afraid that's that's the game. And is it a psychological edge as well? Do you watch televised matches of your opponents to better understand their game? You know, Tony was talking about the, f- the first hour about you know, it's, it's also the tactical side of it of mm. blocking. You know, it's yeah. not all just about getting around the table and clearing the balls if you can, fantastic but yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a tactical game yeah, yeah. the safety game um, going back to what you said originally about as the game changed since the, since the early 70s, 80s um, that's possibly that that was their strongest point they used to play a lot of safety game and, and just pick a few points off here and there um, whereas now it's a lot more uh, attacking and the people like Mark Selby's won the world championships twice in three years I mean, he's a close friend of mine, and, and you know we, we were juniors together. But to see him progress is fantastic for him. And obviously, the reason he's progressed is because he's learnt that stuff a lot quicker than than most. I um, mean, he is known as the torturer, as Ronnie O'Sullivan once called him in the world final. Um, but yeah, that that side of the game is more mental preparation. Um, you know, do you say you're coming up against a fast or a slow player, or are they attacking? So if they're attacking, you have to stop them before they stop you, and it's. Um, and again, excuse my ignorance because yeah. I should know. How many frames would you normally play in a, a, a tour match? The the, the shortest um, games we play now are best of sevens, so first to four, um, right. and then it goes. Best so that can be over quite quickly, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Normally, if if it's a four nil, it's about an hour or so. Um, if it's a one sided affair, um, but again, you can get them matches where it just drags on and drags on, and it can be hours and hours and hours, and you can even be pulled off uh, off the table and put onto the next session when when there's a there's a spare table so you could I touch wood it hasn't happened to me um, <laughs> but uh, yeah you could be sitting around for hours waiting to finish a game even yeah yeah and what's it like socially i mean you start to say you obviously got mates in yeah. the game is it a you know one big does everybody mix well it's sort of like a big family because we yeah. all don't get on <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, well, you, you do. You do obviously get your close friends. Uh, so, who, who are you closest to? Um, well, there's a few of the young lads. Where obviously, we we, uh, we we turned professional almost around the same time. Uh, I grew up with young lad Robbie Williams. He played at the Crucible the last three years, so uh, it's obviously brilliant to see him do that and inspiring. Really, um, Martin O'Donnell. He's uh, he, he's practiced up in Wofford, um, and then you've got uh, like the likes of Mark Selby, Sean Murphy. Ali Carter, uh, Stuart Bingham, we were practice partners and friends on and off the table. Um, but clearly you know that when you when you meet them in a tournament, it, uh, it's handbags at dawn. And you, you've got a nickname. I have indeed, yeah. <laughs> where did that, t- tell everyone what the nickname is and where did it come from? The Albino Assassin. <laughs> it's cute, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
better than the blonde bombshell. Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that would prove worthy at certain yeah, moments in yeah. nightclubs, etc. But go on, yeah. Um, the story was when I used to work in the offices. Um, it was a rainy day, and I came in with my hood up, and it was around the same time that the Da Vinci Code uh, film oh, yeah. came out, and uh, one of one of the boys in the office just spun around, seeing me with my hood up, and he just said, "Oh, look at Silas." So uh, the Silas stemmed into the Albino assassin because it was more uh, flamboyant for the snooker, uh, the snooker fraternity, and uh, and it stuck. I don't know if it's a good one or not, but it's good. I like it's it. Mine. It's good. It's good. We haven't yet talked about the equipment that you use. Now you you brought a cue with you today, mm-hmm. so let's pull that up. Maybe Tony can grab that, and uh, we, we can describe to the listeners. You can tell us all about cue because I guess, I mean, this is so important to you. This is indeed, yeah, yeah. So, how long have you had this queue? Uh, to be fair, I've only had this eighteen months. Okay. Uh, the last queue I had was even more important, purely because I had it from the age of nine. Did you? Yeah, yeah. I had it for twenty-one years. But it was like the two Ronnies. It had five new heads, two new handles, and all that. So <laughs> it, it got brittle over the time, and uh, I thought it was a good thing to invest in a, in a piece of wood that was going to last me another ten or twenty years. And when we say a piece of wood, what wood is it? That uh, it's ash. It's it, ash. It's ash. Yeah, with uh, spliced ebony up on the bottom. Uh, all handmade. Always the case that ash is the wood that is used, or is there? A- uh, there is a different wood. People use uh, maple. Yeah. Um, sometimes it can vary between the ash. Uh, mine's American ash. It's like a darker grain. Um, there's English ash, which is more light, maybe orangey. Um, you just get a different feel as a player. If you, so it makes a difference to your game. You can really feel the difference. Yeah. I mean, this is tailor made. Is it? Um, so it's it's made to measure. It's obviously to suit my height. Um, weight, okay. what I'm used to. And so there's no regulation on the length or weight? Um, the only regulation you have is, um, I think, the, the shortness, possibly. I mean, in the rules of snooker, it's one of them things that you would never actually uh, delve into purely because the uh, the dimensions of the queue are almost similar. There's only a couple of inches in, in the length or, or the weight is a few ounces heavier or, or lighter. It's just a personal preference, really. And I had a quick feel of the game you can feel a difference actually it, it, yeah. it's got an amazing yeah yeah silk feel to that's it actually it's, that's because it's clean you see is <laughs> that your job well i've got you yeah. don't have someone to do that do no, you no 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 tony doesn't do that we haven't we haven't got into that stage yet <laughs> we haven't got into that stage but you work uh, on it work on it yeah work on it but um yeah i mean i'm a little bit ocd with the snooker if i'm honest so everything's got to be clean tidy in its place that's and, great and, uh, no, I, I think you have to be at the, this level of sport i'm anyway. sure and the actual tip yes Elkmaster tip. Um, there's two common makes, uh, Brunswick Blue Diamond and an Elkmaster. Um, I've always used Elkmasters. Um, you can get them on any snookering websites. Um, but I uh, say it's, again, personal preference. I put my own tips on, though, so if I was to not be happy with one, I can change it in 10 or 15 minutes. And, you can. And, I, and I, I can clear that out of my head, yeah. So how many cues would you take to a tournament? This is the only one I have in my possession. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of getting one made. Um, there's a, a one of my men, men down in um, Portsmouth, yep. Gavin Mengham, um, GQs. He's actually making me a, a, a spare, so to speak. I mean, just if that dreaded uh, moment happens that you get off a long haul flight and, and your queue doesn't get off, for sure. <laughs> yeah, which uh, could happen. Yeah, I mean, you can, in a sense, as a professional player, you can use any piece of wood, so to speak. But um, like you say, there's subtle differences that you would know whether it be yours or not blindfolded and obviously the feel of how it hits the ball and you can go into all that detail but a, a player really knows if I hit two or three balls I'll know if I can play with it long term or not 
So if you're an amateur starting out in the game, mm-hmm. never played before, you'd start off with a queue, which would cost you how much? Um, I originally started one from the local Argos for about uh, 12.99 or something silly like that when I was a kid. And then when you reach your standard now, how much would a queue cost you? Uh, well, this one, with all the bits and bobs, we've got extensions and three sizes extensions in the case oh, there. Of course you have, yeah, because yeah. you can have all the different attachments to it as yeah, well. Yeah, well, with a 12-foot table, is a, it's a bit hard to reach from the, the, the opposite end, so it's like ends up like a fishing rod. <laughs> <laughs> but um, How difficult is it to master that? I mean, it must... Uh, you, you watch it on TV, they make it look so easy, but... Yeah, it's all about eyesight, mate. <laughs> it's all about eyesight. Is if it? you can see that far, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> That's why Dennis Taylor used to wear them <laughs> goggles. Right. <laughs> I remember well. So how much would you pay for a queue now, um, This cost me approximately... Uh, 500 for the queue and then a few hundred for the little extra bits and bobs but I say what's such a long term investment I think I earned that back in, in the first tournament I played in so did you? Yeah, yeah yeah. but obviously you can pay as a professional you can pay up to anything you want it all depends on the, the style of woods it's all decorative mainly but um, obviously more expensive woods and the price goes up and you were saying, just talking about prize money, obviously when you get into big tournaments, it's presumably mega bucks that you can yeah. can win. Mm-hmm. But you were saying you also do a, it was a separate Euro circuit to keep your ranking up. Yeah. So is there prize money in that? And is that yeah, yeah, yes? yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, they're just smaller ranking events to professionals, uh, but they were available to amateurs at the time. Um, we've actually got one coming up at the end of the month in Germany, the Paul Hunter Classic, um, named after, obviously, the late, great Paul Hunter, the player. Um, so... That's uh, that. That's what's that's what on next on my calendar. And when's that? Uh, I fly out on the twenty seventh of August. Okay, well, yeah, good luck. Just with a that. weekend tournament. Thanks well, very much. Well, let's talk about this season for you then, because when did the season start for snooker? It's actually come around quite quick after the World Championships. Uh, season starts on the twenty seventh of May, which is only three or so weeks after the final of the World Championship. You'd watch on BBC, so yeah. we we haven't got time to to uh, to take much of a rest. Um, so that started as three qualifiers. And where have you been then this this, this season? Where well, it started off in you? sunny Preston hey. for the qualifiers. Preston <laughs> Guildhall, actually, which used to host uh, a snooker tournament, which as a kid I used to watch every year because it was only down the road from Liverpool. Um, and it brought back a bit, bit of nostalgia, really, walking into the venue and thinking, wow, I'm finally playing here, albeit as a qualifying uh, uh, game instead of instead of a main tour venue. But uh, the setup's great, so you still had that buzz. Um, and that was the start of the season was Indian Open qualifiers, the Latvia, and uh, a Chinese event called the World Open, which was far out in Yushan. So you've really been around. I have. I, I mean, how's that funded then? Um, well, as, as of round one, you're on zero pounds, right. points, anything. Right. Um, as soon as you win one game, you're on prize money straight away. That obviously differs with... Um, the stature of the tournament, the size of the ranking event, um, and then once you, you're into the second round, the last 64, um, then that's where the prize money starts coming in. Well, Snooker have actually teamed up with a travel agent, so you can almost book a flight via Well Snooker, and they they take out your prize money, so you don't have to come up with the funds up front, which, okay, is, which so has been a massive, massive I'll help bet. to some of the professionals. Yeah, bet. yeah. And how are you faring this this season? How's it going so far? Yeah, well, I was only I was one of 17 out of the 128 players, uh, to win all three qualifying matches up in Preston. Congratulations. So thanks very much. That's really um, good. So that, who did you play? Uh, I played Sam Bird, uh, Liam Highfield, and Jamie Cope. Um, three youngish players. So youngish, you know, I mean, compared to the, the older generation, but uh, 
very good steady players uh, Sam Baird was at the World Championships this year so he was on a good good run um, so it was I owed him one really from last season so it was nice to get one over on him <laughs> um, Jamie Cope yeah he's quick fire we were juniors together and he, he's done spectacular things in the game years, years gone by and again another I mean they're all good wins nowadays everyone can yeah. play to a similar standard oh, and, and uh, it's it, the qualifying in a cubicle is and best of how tough. many frames did you say were those games in um, two of them were best of seven right. and the Chinese event was uh, best of nine so first of five what was it like playing out in China experience it was, like, it was my first time to go to China actually within the, the, the three years um, I've been on tour and uh, we had a red carpet treatment when we got there and I'd done a little boogie down the red carpet and it, <laughs> it got a few hits on social media I think yeah <laughs> I just can't sit still mate I can't sit still <laughs> <laughs> oh that's brilliant yeah yeah but it's such an experience I mean the fans go wild for it over there I mean things and weird so big crowds massive yeah 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 I mean it was in Yushan, which was we. Well, the journey was was a bit a bit of an epic one, really. We started off in Heathrow via Germany into Shanghai, minibus, bullet train, and then a taxi to the hotel. But there's um, a few of you go together. So yes, I mean the 64 qualifiers. So okay. you've always got someone's coattails to hang on to. <laughs> so yeah, which was handy as, as it being my first time. But um, and the organisation over there was was very good. So you you were looked after and that's uh, great. Yeah. yeah. And, and you talk, we talked about the queue and the quality of the queue you've mm-hmm. got. When you've reached the standard that you're in now, that professional standard, the tables themselves, you're saying that there's one company that literally maintained for World Snooker the tables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tables, they used to be Riley's, hence the Riley Snooker Clubs. Um, okay. but, but they've changed the contract now, and it's a Chinese snooker table, um, which is called Star Tables. But they are actually maintained by World Snooker Services. So it's our own many, many band of men, really, that follow us around. They're there for two days before setting up. They're, they're there to maintain, brush, block, iron the tables, fix any problems. If, if we're moaning that it's, it's not straight, when sometimes it's, it's actually yourself who's making it not straight. <laughs> but, um, and then they're there at least a day or two after us as well. So Holly. they're unsung heroes, really, because without them we couldn't, we couldn't play because there'd be no tables there. Um, but, yeah, they're there, they're there for our disposal. <laughs> and presumably the quality of these tables are just unbelievable yeah, compared yeah. to... I mean, like, yeah, yeah, if, 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 you really walk, if you're walking into a snooker club and uh, you're just playing on a normal snooker table with a normal snooker cloth and a normal set of snooker balls, then that's all well and good. But, I mean, there's a lot of players who actually do come up to the professional circuit and the standard of cloth, table, maintenance, balls, everything is different. The cloth's thinner, finer, faster, and the balls are all weighted within one gram of each other so that it's like consistency of play. So I mean, you can go into a, into a snooker club and you think you can screw back for for eleven feet, but it's actually just a light white, and uh, and then you go onto a professional table and it, it's like an ice skating rink. So, <laughs> can get so that must alter your game as well. I mean, that must yeah. take a you know a heck of a time yeah. to get used to. Yeah, it can do. It can do. I mean, obviously that's all down to experience then. But I think the biggest investment for a professional player is to keep your cloth up to scratch. Um, you know, keep it regular so it's as fast as can be. So when you do go to these main events where the conditions are superb, um, best in the business, then it, you know if you can emulate that in your practice uh, facility, then you've got a greater chance of of performing the same as you do in, in practice. Yeah. And your current tour card runs for this year, this season and next. Uh, it was actually last season and this. And this. Yes, yes, yes. So, so the three wins you've just had, the the Euro wins. Yeah, it was a- presumably. Help protect the ranking and yeah, yeah. It was a great. Does it alter 
the season goes on, can you yes. bounce up and down the ranking? Like, yeah, of course yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah, there's certain cut-off points after after a number of tournaments that they refresh the rankings, and the seeds are set then for the next bunch of tournaments. Um, we've got, there's a two-year ranking list, which is the official rankings, but they have a one-year um, rolling ranking which starts every season, um, and that's actually the way this year um, that the professionals are ma- going to maintain their their spot. So on the one-year list, if you're within the top 64 on the one-year list, yeah. then you retain your ticket, which is obviously my aim, and obviously to keep climbing. Um, so but that, it's early in the season still for you anyway, yeah. so, so much can happen. Yeah, yeah. but after, after Preston, uh, after the 17 people, we were all at world number one. But alphabetically, Alan, I was top of the list. Hey. So I took, <laughs> I took a snapshot of that and I po- put it on my fridge. I bet you did. Yeah. I bet you did. Hard work starts now, I may stay in there. But it sounds like you're pleased that you, your game is improving. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. How, how close to the top end do you think you can get? I mean, it might, the, the competition is just... I mean, self-belief and confidence is absolutely humongous in our game. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a more psychological sport than physical um, obviously talent plays a massive part but if, if you haven't got the mindset to, to push that talent in the right direction then um, you, can, you can be banging your head against a brick wall but I mean I truly believe that I can, I can get to the top of the game with my talent and it's just basically experience, knowledge base um, and just gathering as much as you can and taking from each match you know, um, and, in, and moving on into the next one um, without letting yourself falter of your, of your targets and your goals I'm sure. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, Alan. Thanks for having You've me. You've got um, the Paul Hunter Classic coming up, you Indeed, said. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that follows Liter- with... Yeah, we've got literally a day break. I fly back on the Sunday evening. Yeah. Um, and then I'll be driving up north to Barnsley then. And what's that uh, for? That's for the Shanghai Masters qualifiers. Now, so, that confused me, because I did yeah. look at them and think, oh, you're off to Shanghai soon. That's going to be pretty yeah, impressive, yeah. but it doesn't start in Shanghai. No, I shocked you a bit when I said it's only <laughs> a three-and-a-half-hour drive. <laughs> So does it eventually go to Shanghai, or is it just called? Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, it does. Okay. Yeah, there's 32 players who, who go out there. It's so it. who have you got in competition? Who's coming up that you're playing in, in both the Paul Hunter and the Shanghai? Uh, the Paul Hunter, I've got a good friend of mine on tour, Andrew Higginson. He's from back up north, um, and that's in the Paul Hunter. And then the Shanghai Masters, I'm playing Hatem Yasen, who's a foreign player. Who's I think he's just gone on the tour this year. Okay, so so you could be in for... Hopefully some wins there. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, obviously, I'm just taking the the experience and and the confidence I've got from from the start of the season and just hopefully just build on that and uh, keep climbing. Fabulous. Uh, uh, Before we lose you today, you're you're a bit of an impressionist. So you do impressions of some of the other snooker players, who I might not know, by the way. Uh, But you've also done a, a brilliant... Kembrose for us. Oh, yeah. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. That's, that's perfect. perfect. Yeah. How long does it take you to perfect a voice? Um, well, I have a lot of time driving to tournaments in the car <laughs> on my own. <laughs> if there was a video camera, I'd tell you what, it would sell for millions. But uh, yeah, I, I sort of listen to it. When, when I'm watching the TV, my girlfriend, she's like, well, you be quiet. You know, I'm, I've just got to practice that, you know, watching David Attenborough on, on the, the National Oh, so you Bible. do a bit of David Attenborough as well. Yeah. Can you give us a quick burst? Oh, now we're three, uh, three young men in a radio station. Uh, and uh, Brooklyn's radio, the sound of sorry, and here they are. Here we are now. Very good, very good. So thank you so much for coming. Tony, thanks for um, driving all the way for us. Pleasure. And sorry, pleasure. sorry, the M25 was so bad for you, but a pleasure to see you both. Be great if you can come back again. Indeed, I'd love yeah. to have you back. Well, thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, no, thank it's you. It's been a real pleasure, and we wish you absolutely the best of luck in the coming weeks. Thank you. And so the season goes on till when? This um, season. Well, the last tournament is May. 
2017. So right away. So through. yeah, the World Championships, uh, the qualifiers for the World Championships start actually the second week of April, um, and then it starts the third week of April on the BBC as you as you see it, and then that finishes uh, the Bank Holiday Sunday Monday in May. So uh, got a long way to go, mate. So it's been a good investment so far. The first three tournaments been Great. about and. Uh, Gained a lot and just we'll more hard work to come. keep pushing up on that ranking and we'll, we'll get you in the top ten in no time at all. Yes, I hope so. And uh, we wish you all the best, seriously. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you so much for coming down well, to thanks, Brooklyn's Radio. Thanks for Brooklyn's Radio for having me and uh, best of luck in all you do as well, mate. Thank you so much. 